Equine health is our business. Horses and education are our passion. Welcome to the EquiConnect podcast. Here we have case-based conversation and talk about interesting news and information with the goal of sharing knowledge, focusing on equine health. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship. Welcome to our latest episode of our EquiConnect podcast brought to you by McKee Panel Equine Services. I am your host, Karen Fell, joined by my co-host, Dr. Mike Connell. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you today? Very interested in what we're going to talk about today, which is called gut health. Ooh, a big topic here today. It's a long topic because from one end of the intestines to the other, it's what, 90 feet, 30 odd meters. We compact a lot of intestines in the horses, but Honestly, the gut as, you know, what affects the gut and what we talk about gut health really starts at the mouth. Absolutely. And then goes down the esophagus, down through the stomach, into the intestines and out the other end. So we're going to be covering a wide range of things today. I like it. I'm excited too. We're really lucky today. We have two of our veterinarians joining us today from our Caledon practice. We have Dr. Claudia Cruz. Thank you for joining us today, Claudia. Hello. Thank you. As well as Dr. Kate Robinson. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself, Claudia? Uh, Yeah, I am from Mexico City and I am boarded in large animal internal medicine. I also have a Master of Sciences in Comparative and Experimental Medicine and I've worked in both academia and private practice. So I'm very happy to be in this podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. And what about yourself, Kate? I am Canadian and joined Minky Pownell from academic practice uh, coming up on three years ago, actually. I also am boarded, but I am a species specialist rather than a discipline specialist like Dr. Cruz. I am a diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners in equine practice. So what's the difference between the two? I'm sure there's people listening going, well, you're both boarded. Isn't that the same? Actually, no, far from it. And I guess because my boards are a little bit different, as I've already alluded to, I I really make the general split between a species specialization, which is what I have. I am specialized in equine practice and general equine care, if you will, versus a discipline, specialty or board certification, such as internal medicine, like Dr. Cruz is boarded in, or surgery. Other specialties that we might think about would include ophthalmology, dermatology, etc. So just as an aside for Ontario, uh, the only vets that can call themselves a specialist are those that are boarded, like uh, Claudia or Kate. Uh, People can say, oh, you know, somebody could say, I have 40 years expertise in doing this, but unless they're boarded, they cannot call themselves specialists. So Karen, we are with esteemed company today. feel very privileged. (laughs) So let's start. Claudia, when we're talking about gut health, I sort of alluded to a little bit, but what are the main area, what are the main body systems that we're concerned about when we talk about gut health? It's not main. Actually, everything has to do with gut health. Every single system or apparatus in a horse's body actually functions in regards of gut health and vice versa. So if, for example, gut health is affected in some way, 
then uh, there would be repercussions, for example, infertility, eye problems, cognition, uh, skin problems, uh, immune problems uh, like allergies, for example, performance, body condition score, nutrition. So you name it. So I think gut health is like a good point to start to talk about how it would affect the other systems if gut health is not healthy. So like we talk about when people are, you are what you eat. So I imagine the same thing would apply to horses. Exactly. It's more dramatic because of uh, they are herbivores. So we have uh, quite modified their habits of grazing and with domestication, everything has been changed. So uh, you can see it more in these animals. As an aside, I know I read somewhere, and maybe one of you know the right number, but I've heard somewhere that with the feral horse or the wild horses that we'd see in Western Canada or the U.S., like 10 kilometers plus the day they, they, they move around, like that's crazy. Easily, yeah, and often grazing 12, even 18 hours of those days. Yeah, they're supposed to spend a lot of time eating. And so not only are we worried about them being in a stall or turnout when they don't have this 10 plus kilometers today to walk around in and all the food that they're eating, because we sort of specialize when they're going to eat, but it's also with the teeth. So if we're going to start there on the teeth, if they're not grinding hay all day, their, their teeth are not going to wear off all the sharp points that we worry about. So I guess that's a nice question for you, Kate, is that what are the problems that we see in these systems that really impact gut health as if we wanted to start from the top and work our way back teeth for sure is a big one and the sharp points that you've already mentioned uh sharp points probably the most common abnormality that we find when we do an oral exam on the horse and certainly are problematic or can be problematic in our performance horses because you know we are putting bits in their mouths bridles on their heads asking them to go in specific positions, directions, etc. So when we have those sharp points on the sides of their teeth, they start to point into and even damage the cheek tissue, the tongue tissue, and that just makes what we are asking them to do with the bit and the bridle all that much more difficult and even painful so just a, a simple thing like not wearing off their or wearing their teeth properly can actually have some pretty big consequences for our modern ridden horse. So just to clarify, unlike people, horses' teeth are continuously erupting. So it's not like I can smile and it's the same smile I've had for 30 years. 30 years. <laughs> yeah. No, that's exactly right. Horses are growing or erupting teeth, as you said throughout essentially their entire lives. And nowadays, I guess further to that point, horses are being cared for so well, which is maybe a little bit hypocritical to some of the statements we've already made, that they are outliving their teeth. So then they are needing specialized diets later in life to maintain health and wellness. So I get a sense before we go any further down from the mouth is we could probably talk for like hours on this subject and we're oh, just yeah. at the mouth and i'm just thinking as we're talking like we could talk about this we could talk about that we, there's a lot we could talk about like it's pretty complex mm -hmm. so after the mouth what are the biggest areas you're concerned about claudia when we get down to the stomach we can pretty much skip the esophagus because it's related to the teeth so the main problem we would encounter eventually would be choke but uh, that's pretty straightforward 
then would be the stomach, which is a different world there already. And within the stomach, we have the squamous portion and the glandular portion, which is a different world, each of uh, those two types of tissue. The defense mechanisms are widely different between them. Again, diet and just uh, grazing behavior per day would affect uh, hugely how the animal has defense mechanisms. Usually, you know, in the stomach, there is a hydrochloric acid produced uh, to try to, is the first uh, step for degrading feeds. And a horse, it's, it's a herbivore that should be grazing about 17 hours per day. So continuously having small amounts of feed in a continuous manner then would make the stomach uh, secrete continuously hydrochloric acid. But on the other hand, there's buffers that counteract these like saliva and bicarbonates. And if we don't have that, if we have just, let's say, twice a day or three times per day meals in large volumes, and we are totally disrupting this and uh, predisposing the horse to the formation of equine gastric ulcer syndrome, uh, which is a big, big uh, deal. And it's actually more common than what it's been reported in the literature, at least in our experience uh, this year. It depends on the discipline of the horse. Uh, also, would come with uh, how is the diet created for that discipline. For example, race horses consume a lot of uh, high sugary, high starch grain for performance, and just the habits—you know, twice a day meals and no time for pasture, no time for zine pasture mates—which is it's another uh, common factor for formation for ulcers. Then horses in the racetrack, you can tell that probably. 90 to 100 uh, percent, they have gastric ulcers, so that's a big deal. And uh, performance horses, like the ones that we mostly see here in this practice, like show jumpers, dressage, or barrel racers, they actually have a big incidence of ulcers as well. Interestingly, the glandular type. So we'll get into that in a little bit. But the good news is we know how to diagnose and treat them. So there's some optimism. There's we're listening to this. You're like, why do we even have horses? <laughs> Why horses have all this? <laughs> yeah, yes. After we pass the stomach, big intestines, small intestines, we're worried about colic. But for today's discussion and the time of year, beginning of October, we're also worried a lot about worms. Kate, can you want to comment on that? Sure. Over the last two plus decades have really changed the way that we approach evaluating the worm or parasite load in, in horses and then treating them. So what are the problems that we see associated with worm loads in a horse? Some of the problems that we see in horses with worm loads could include weight loss or failure to gain in the face of an appropriate diet, lack of top line, chronic diarrhea. So it sounds like we can do the best job with the teeth, greatest nutrition, no ulcers, but if they have worm load, it's all for naught. Yes. Those little friends are not so friendly. <laughs> in small amounts, they are, but not in huge amounts. True, true. Are there any obvious uh, problems that we haven't talked about? One of the problems that we worry about, particularly at this time of year and late late summer as well, is Potomac horse fever, which is an infection of the large colon. Essentially, horses can be quite sick with Potomac horse fever. Uh, You might see signs of colic, diarrhea, inappetence, so being off feed, fevers. 
And one of the really bad or scary things about Potomac horse fever is that it can actually really negatively affect their feet, leading to laminitis. So that goes back to Dr. Cruz's comments about how the gut and gut health is related to everything. The good news about Potomac horse fever is we do have ways of preventing or controlling it. There is a vaccine. It's not going to be 100% effective 100% of the time, but generally speaking, will decrease the severity of disease in horses that do contract it. And we can do things to control the insects on our properties that pass Potomac horse fever on to horses. Thank you. So I guess we can start uh, back at the mouth again. And how would we diagnose these issues that uh, we were discussing? So the main thing would be a proper oral exam where the horse is sedated and has a speculum placed with a really good light source and a mirror. All of those pieces are critical to being able to fully and completely evaluate the mouth. We can get some information without some of those pieces, but often we're going to be missing things uh, and the things that we miss might be pretty critical to the horse. So I imagine there's some probably long time horse people listening to this and hearing you talk about the tools we need for dentistry and you're like mirrors and lights. I mean, the knowledge that we have about dentistry has grown exponentially over the last couple of decades. It definitely has. And with that exponential growth of knowledge, our ability to diagnose and treat more specific problems within the horse's mouth to make them better partners for performance. So the old days of just putting a couple floats in the bucket and just grabbing onto the tongue and going at it is just not enough anymore. Not enough. And as an aside, I would think that most horses' hyoid apparatus would complain about that tongue grabbing. Yes. We even have now uh, endoscopy, x-ray, and CT exactly. for like complicated teeth cases. Mm -hmm might be worth sending to sometimes. I mean, even now we have a boarded certification or accreditation now in dentistry, which is brand new in equine. So, And we're lucky to have a newly board certified equine dentist in our province. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, moving on down, Claudia, how would we diagnose the stomach problems, the ulcers that you discussed earlier? So as compared to the myth of uh, uh, having signs, which is a very valid point, having signs of girthiness, poor performance, uh, recurrent migraine colics, this can be very unspecific for any type of GI disease or even feet disease or even tying up. There can be very similar signs. So the only really uh, way to diagnose gastric ulcers in horses is through a camera. So the procedure is called gastroscopy, and it involves passing a 3 to 3.5 meter long scope, pretty much from the nose all the way to the stomach, uh, to try to see the whole, what we mentioned before, the two types of tissues in the stomach. And if the length allows it, pass it into the, the beginning portion of the duodenum, which is already the small intestine. It's just with a camera. And you do a lot of those. Yeah, we do a lot of gastroscopies <laughs> here. Yeah. And it's amazing because just having that technology and just the amount we can diagnose, or not just us, any veterinarian that has a gastroscope, it's just almost the night and day differences in some of these cases that we come across. It's, it's just, it's really gratifying as a vet because treating without diagnosing, it's hard. It, it can be more expensive. We've met a few people who treat indefinitely with omeprazole or the products that are labeled for gastric ulcers, but 
at the end, this becomes more expensive rather than having a gastroscopy done, knowing exactly what type of ulcers we have, squamous or glandular, giving the treatments for the duration we need to, and then that's just half of the battle. The other half comes from husbandry and management, as we mentioned. Absolutely. Thank you. Moving further along, we'll talk again about uh, deworming and how we're able to diagnose any worming issues. Yeah. Our go-to test nowadays for diagnosing parasite loads or, or worm issues in our horses is called a fecal egg count. So quite simply, we take a fecal sample, send it to the lab, and they, after running it through a special process, are able to count the eggs in that sample. And from that, tell us whether the horse is categorized as a low shedder, medium shedder, or high shedder. Specifically, that test really only looks at strongile type eggs. We will still pick up different types of eggs, so tapeworms, uh, ascarids, or roundworms, but we don't have established cutoffs for whether to deworm or not when we see those types of eggs. Circling back to the strongiles and the types of shedders, typically our low and sometimes even our moderate shedders are only going to need deworming twice a year. Uh, whereas our higher shedders, we're going to be targeting a little bit more frequently, three to four times a year, and maybe managing them a little bit differently as well. If we pick up tapeworm eggs or roundworm eggs, we're probably going to suggest deworming that horse regardless with a specific product to address those types of parasites. That's great. And I really like too how you mentioned as well that the difference of the shedding doesn't mean that there isn't any deworming. It just would really specify the frequency of the deworming and the products. It's worth mentioning that, as uh, Dr. Robinson mentioned, that our most common technique for diagnosing worms, pretty much eggs in the feces, uh, would not be able to catch certain parasites either. So that's when it becomes a bit tricky, the recommendations. Uh, however, we have other tests, like for example, for tapeworms, we have a, an ELISA that usually at the end of autumn is when we would recommend doing that if we are suspicious about that, we, because it cannot be caught by fecal accounts. And we have the problem with cyathostomes, which are also known as small strongias. It's a big problem around the world, especially in the UK, big, big problem with resistance. And there is no way to diagnose them unless we perform an autopsy on a horse, and that's already too late. So it's just an assumption. And just for you to know that fecal egg count is great, and we would still recommend doing that, but it doesn't catch up everything. So we talked about Potomac horse fever. How are we diagnosing that? We are diagnosing that with a PCR test on a fecal sample. Can I ask as well, how long does it take for the results of Potomac horse fever test to come back? That is a good question. I think it is usually in the two to four day range, so not as rapid as we would like it to. But that brings up a good point. If we are highly suspicious based on clinical signs, we will start treatment because the disease can be so significant and severe that we want to get ahead of it often before we have that definitive diagnosis. So while we're here, how do we treat Potomac? We actually can readily treat Potomac with an antibiotic called oxytetracycline. 
It's an IV antibiotic that your veterinarian would administer to your horse. Sometimes these horses need additional supportive care in the form of fluids, pain medications, fever reducers. Depending on how sick they are, we may recommend that they go to the hospital for that additional care. There's nothing more distinctive than being in a barn with a horse that has Potomac. There is a very unique smell that yes, nobody wants to smell that. And so, Claudia, when we talk about moving our way backwards, going back up to the stomach now, so how are we treating the ulcers that you're diagnosing with the gastroscope? The ulcers that we find in the stomach, if it's in the squamous portion of the stomach, then omeprazole in the form of uh, the commercial brand uh, GastroGuard is really effective, like the most effective we have in Canada and the only one approved. If it's in the glandular portion of the stomach, then we would have to add something else uh, on top of uh, omeprazole or GastroGuard. That would probably be Socrathate. And if the glandular ulcers are severe or if the pylorus, which is the exit into the small intestine, is severely inflamed to the point that it could cause uh, an outflow obstruction into the small intestine, then we would, we would probably add misoprostol to that, which is a prostaglandin analog to try to decrease a little bit the inflammation and also promote mucus formation because it's lost by whatever stress or medicines. That's just with gastroscopies. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have a way to diagnose uh, potential hindgut ulcers in large animals because we don't have such a big of a scope, like 25 meter long scope to go through the rectum. It's impossible. There are studies with a really nice peel that had a camera and they tube the horse with that camera. And it was really cool because it made it all the way into the cecum. Uh, however, the cecum is like a big triangle. And once it touches the bottom of the cecum, it's, it's lodged there and can't really be flushed out. So that's the end of the study. <laughs> so we, we are missing the colon, the small colon and the rectum, and we are still in the same situation. There is a very non-specific test in USA called Succeed. It's, it's kind of like a, an antigen rapid test. It's not very sensitive for it. However, if you do have Bleeding ulcers, it would be very uh, specific for it. So that means uh, whatever is whatever is negative, it will be negative. But uh, be a test being negative on this one uh, not necessarily means that the horse doesn't have ulcers. It's just not detected because it's not at the point of bleeding. So we don't have an accurate diagnosis for hindgut ulcers. We can just assume that if we found them in the glandular portion of the stomach, it's possible uh, that there might be hindgut ulcers in conjunction with the clinical signs of poor performance, weight loss, etc. Excellent. And so I want to end on this section on deworming and how we treat this, but first let's just sort of stop at the mouth there, Kate. And, you know, I guess the obvious answer, how do you treat them is dentistry. Yes. Dentistry, typically with power floats or uh, motorized floats. Again, those motorized instruments actually allow us to do a better job than the hand floats do. There's many different specialized bits nowadays that we can reach specific parts of a tooth or a specific part of the mouth uh, to address some of those more advanced problems that we are now diagnosing and encountering. We also, though there are other things that uh, sometimes are needed when treating dental problems like extractions of teeth. So we might remove a very loose or very diseased tooth. 
And horses seem to be quite susceptible to getting infected teeth. Yes, they are. Those darn horses aren't brushing their teeth often enough. (laughs) It's mainly the flossing. Yeah. Yeah. Infected teeth, especially after suffering a fracture, is quite common. Horses can even get what we call ICH, which is pretty similar to cavities in people. And there are specialists out there that will actually do endodontic, so inside the tooth, treatment like filling a cavity, essentially, to help save that tooth. But those are pretty specialized treatments. So let's finish on the deworming, because that's the most controversial. You sort of brought up the fact that in the last couple of decades, we've changed our approach. So let's talk about that. One of the things that I really want to hit home for the listeners, because I've personally experienced this and, and had it cause issues, is that we are using fecal egg counts to help us determine who needs to be dewormed or doesn't need to be at certain times of year. And as Claudia has said, they're not a perfect test, but they're better than nothing. But really important that we are making that age distinction at three years of age, particularly our weanlings, yearlings, and young stock horses are affected by different types of parasites. We worry most about ascarids or roundworms in them, and we still need to be deworming them on a more frequent schedule, typically starting at about two to three months of age. And with fenbendazole, please talk to your veterinarian about specifics for this, but I really want to highlight that we can't lump our young horses in with our older horses or we will run into problems. One of the big myths around deworming and something that we used to do that has actually caused problems is called rotational deworming. So that was where we dewormed horses about every six weeks and used a different product each time. And unfortunately, one of the main things that that did was contribute to the resistance that we are now seeing to deworming. So kind of like indiscriminate use of antibiotics, we have antibiotic resistance. Exactly the same thing. So every time we deworm a horse, there are some worms that don't die. Either they are in a larval stage, hiding somewhere, they're just super strong and the dewormer doesn't affect them. And so they remain in the population. And then we expose them to a new dewormer six weeks from now, and they're like, "Ah, bring it on. I'm going to survive this one as well. And then those worms that remain are the ones that are reproducing and passing on those super strong genetics. So similar to how we talk about viruses mutating, the worms can mutate a little bit and develop resistance, and then we have problems on our hands. So that's a really long-winded way of saying we should stop six-week deworming practices. And again, our low shedders, deworm them once or twice a year in consultation with your veterinarian. Our higher shedders, deworm them three to four times a year, again, in consultation with your veterinarian. And we don't want to be rotating products like we used to. I think what we call it now is targeted deworming. So like this is, we've got the fecal test, tells us something, gives us guidance of what we should do Mm -hmm. and not just machine gun everything, hoping it works. Exactly. Exactly. So the targeted deworming, it's a really good term because that fecal egg count that we are using has told us 
Number one, whether the horse is really needing to be dewormed right now or not. And number two, it gives us an idea of the types of parasites present and therefore what dewormer we should be using. More often than not, as I've already said, we're going to be using a product that targets strongiles, so an ivermectin or a moxidectin, and then occasionally we will see horses where we want to use something else like a pyrenthal or a fenbendazole. New science. We've changed our minds on how we do it. And there's nothing worse than seeing a horse that has a either poor deworming or resistance. Because I have seen surgeries when they've gone in there for a colic in a young horse and they open up the intestines and it's just, it's like the worst horror movie you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's too late and those uh, resistant parasites have already perforated the intestines. And sadly, we just have four main groups of dewormers to play with in uh, equine medicine. So we don't have a lot of chances. There is another recommendation from AAP is like at the farm level, you should also think about your stock density. And as Kate mentioned, dealing with foals in a different way than adults and performing a fecal account reduction test, which is, is the same as a fecal account, but it's done 14 days after the dewormer to see its efficacy. And there is like uh, guidelines on whether it was effective or not, but usually it ranges about 95 to 99% reduction of parasite eggs. Uh, it's called efficacious. That's at a farm level and it's recommended to be done every two or three years for the purposes of maintaining gut health in the farm. Because you can't clear parasites, that's impossible. So people that think that they want to get rid of all parasites and have a fecal account of zero, that's just not possible, neither good. We need some worms, some like very low numbers of certain worms to promote gut health because that's part of the microflora of their GI tracts. I'm hearing a theme from as we've been talking. It's a lot about balance. Not too much, not too little, balance. Karen, talk to us about some of the myths. I know we wanted to introduce a new section here and we'll have them on a future podcast too. Yeah, like let's do something a little different. A common myth is that natural deworming by rotating pastures only or using diatomaceous earth is an effective way of deworming. True or false? False. False. I was going to say, I mean, you can't see it here, but the looks on the faces here. <laughs> so false. Why false? With regards to the diatomaceous earth, unfortunately, it just doesn't work. I don't think there's anything more I need to add to that. Yeah, there's no evidence like pumpkin seeds, carrots, garlic. It might help for humans, but there's no evidence that this is efficacious for horses. And I know there was there's a study somewhere in France like a few years ago. I think it was with carrots, maybe, and uh, I think the parasite load, the, the egg parasite load was 20 times higher than it should be. So please don't let the horses die of parasitism just because of natural dewormers. There's no evidence. Rotation of pastures would be ideal, but you also have to rest the pasture, right? There are some parasites that have an incredible amount of survival, especially during winters and they stay in cysts that us in the pasture so rotation might not be even enough yeah. you may have to rest it particularly in canada we tend to think oh we've got winter and that saves us from all these forms of evil uh the forms of evil just hibernate 
And it's actually, correct me if I'm wrong, Claudia, but it's actually the really hot, humid temperatures in the summer that do the best job of killing parasites on pasture. At least internal parasites, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Way to uh, kill that myth there. (laughs) The next one, true or false? Butte is the only painkiller that causes ulcers. False. (laughs) And what other painkillers can cause ulcers? All of them. So what's the mechanism? So we're talking like the butte, the banamines. I mean, they all cause them. And when they're mixed together, it's even worse. But why do they cause ulcers? Internal medicine specialists, you want to take that one? (laughs) Yeah, well, they act on blocking the inflammation cascade. And on that, there is a bunch of molecules. One of them, well, some of them called prostaglandins. And that also has benefits in our system. Like everything should be in balance, like Mike said. So part of the prostaglandin role would be to help produce mucus in the lining of the stomach and the gut overall. And if you're blocking that, then you're blocking also the production of mucus, which helps counteracting the effects of the acid, for example. So that's just one of the many side effects that anti-inflammatories can have. And not just that, just uh, also antibiotics could eventually cause these issues with colitis and ulcers because... As we mentioned, uh, there is microflora in the gut, the foregut. I mean, horses are hindgut fermenters. Hindgut comes from cecum, colons, and foregut is defined as the stomach and small intestine. So there is different bacteria on these two parts of the GI tract, if I may say that. Foregut has a specific, let's say, core in brackets, bacteria that are a population of horses. And the hindgut has another type of a combination of bacteria, yeast, parasites, and fungi, and all of them are in balance with, uh, that's part of gut health, it's called microbiota. The genetic material of each of these microorganisms is called microbiome. If you ever hear about these terms, microbiome and microbiota, they are used in a similar fashion. So we throw antibiotics to try to destroy certain bacteria, but we, on that, we are also destroying the good bacteria in a horse's gut. So it's called dysbiosis. So we are causing an imbalance and pH and bacteria on everything. So it's like a bad party. Oh, well, that's super. The next myth that we were looking to see if we can bust is, uh, let's say my horse is in a paddock and is only lightly worked. I don't think there is any way that he could possibly have ulcers because, again, he's just lightly worked. Is this true or false? It's false, unfortunately. False. Yeah, as... Dr. Cruz has already done a really good job explaining the way that we manage horses compared to how they have evolved in the wild, unfortunately, really sets them up for uh, gastric ulcers. It's not just the workload or the type of work that we have to worry about. It's the number of meals, the type of meal. Do they have access to friends, good forage? How big is that paddock? The the questions could go on and on about that management piece, but unfortunately, yeah, lightly worked horses on paddocks can still have ulcers. Yeah, socializing is a big one, like really, really as 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 important as the amount of meals that a horse receives per day. Socializing it's very important. If they don't have access to pasture mates, at least just seeing them in front of them, that's a very stressful component for them, believe it or not. They are social animals. And if we remove that part of their lives, we can guarantee you that horse will have ulcers. 
Very interesting. I like that approach, thinking of the horse as a the whole horse. I think that's something we're really trying to uh, speak to today in our podcast. Our final myth of the day is gastroscopy is complicated and expensive. True or false? Yeah, it's false. Both questions are false. You can train anyone to do a gastroscopy, really. It's just a matter of practice and knowing anatomy and practice, 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 because it's not the same as just passing a straight scope into the respiratory tract. You have to turn turn your body, turn the scope in a, like three dimension, five dimension, something weird I can't explain. We also move the hip and it's just very weird, like owners always laugh. But it's a matter of practice, uh, but you have to know uh, what you're looking at and score these ulcers and describe them in order to produce a report and approach the case. And no, it's not that expensive. It depends, I guess, on which part of the world you are at. Here in our practice, it's not expensive at all. It's quite affordable. Well, thank you both for joining us today. This was very interesting. And what I like about these discussions is, is that, you know, you kind of have an idea on things, but having different experiences starts to highlight different areas. So that's really good. And, and thank you to all of you listening for tuning into this episode of our EquiConnect podcast. If you have a topic that you would like to learn more about on our podcast, please contact us and let us know. And also, if you have any questions that you would like a vet to answer, please send them to us on Facebook, Instagram, call, or email. Karen, once again, thank you very much. Thank you. See you all next time. Thank you. Bye. This podcast is not a substitute for regular and emergency veterinary care. Our purpose is to inform and educate horse people not to diagnose and treat medical conditions without a valid veterinary client-patient relationship.